So welcome to our third night, right? Am I counting right? Of our study on the letters of John. We had a, in case anybody's new, we had a night of introduction. And then last week we started 1 John. And I realized that I called tonight week two because I'm focused on 1 John. It's week two of 1 John, but it's week three of everything. So don't get confused and think that this is the wrong week. But anyway, we're going to start. We managed to get through four verses last week, but we also read the whole letter, which took quite a while, and talked about the overarching themes. So tonight we're going to go from verse 5 of chapter 1 through verse 14 of chapter 2. That's the goal. We only have five weeks, so we've got to do practically a chapter a night. But I think we'll be fine. So first, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for another day to be here with our freedom to come together and study your word. Thank you that we have access to your whole word. And I pray that each one of us would take advantage of that privilege daily. And tonight, Lord, we offer ourselves to you. We ask you to guide our minds, that you would guide my mouth, and that everything that is said tonight would come from you, that our hearts would be fertile soil to hear, to understand, to remember, and receive whatever you have for us, whether it be comfort, encouragement, correction, motivation. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is alive and well, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so quick review in case you weren't here last week. The first four verses, which is the introduction or prologue of 1 John, he starts out by telling us that he has authority to instruct us concerning Jesus, who he calls the word of life. Why? Because he is an eyewitness. He has eyewitness testimony. He heard, saw, looked at, touched Jesus in the flesh. And then he tells us the reason he wants to share the gospel message with others is what? So that you also may have fellowship. And he wants to bring other people into the fellowship that he and the other believers share with God. And one thing we took from this prologue is that we too must have a personal encounter with God, just like the disciples did. Although ours may not be in the flesh, we still have to have a personal encounter with Jesus. And our fellowship with the Trinity is the foundation for everything else that will follow in this letter. And that's important because John's going to get very practical and make us very uncomfortable sometimes. He doesn't mince words. He says things that are kind of tough. But everything that follows should be built upon the foundation of our fellowship with God the Father and His Son and with the church. Okay? So our key point was to focus on intimate, consistent fellowship with God. 
This relationship is your identity. And in case you're not sure what your identity is, I put it in parentheses, child of God. That's our identity. And that is what will produce good fruit, knowing who we are. And from that comes what we do. If we try to just do everything right, a lot of times we fail. All the time we fail. Okay. So the first thing I want to do before we start is if you weren't here before, aside from the notes, I gave out some handouts that don't have the three-hole punch because you just keep them in your folder in the little pocket in your binder um, because we're going to be pulling them out every week. And we have more. If you weren't here, they're on the back table. Um, And the one that we're going to use tonight several times is the one that has the title, The Cosmic Battle. It has a line down the middle because we are going to see a lot of contrast between good and evil. And the first thing I want to do is add a couple of things that we already know because of last week. So I'm going to draw up here on the board. We've got Good and evil, right? And did you notice that if you say this word, God is only one letter off, and so is that one? Never. Oh, my goodness. It's interesting to see how close good and evil is and God and devil. Is this the same in Spanish? No. Uh, but one thing I want to make sure that I point out is I'm going to add 1 John 4, 4 here next to God and the, the line that has God and the devil because this is the one that says greater is the one who is in you than the one in the world. And I don't want you to think that these two sides are equal. There is nothing equal about the devil compared to God. So we just got to remember that. And from last week, on this side, I'm going to add also the sun. Also, um, obviously, his name is Jesus. And he's called the word and life. And we're going to keep adding tonight to this list. Okay, so we're going to start the first of two large sections. If you remember from our overview video... Do you remember that he talks about two large sections that each are introduced by the phrase, this is the message. And the first one is tonight, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him, referring to Jesus, the one who was from the beginning, right? And declare to you, God is light. There we go. Light. In him, there is no darkness at all. For me, the words at all are very important. There's no darkness at all. These two are completely separate. No crossover. 
The symbolism depicts the essence of God's character. It's not just talking physically about light, obviously. It's talking about his holiness, his purity, his perfection. When it's saying he's all light and there's no darkness at all, that's what it's referring, referring to. Holy, pure perfection. Absolutely no darkness. Okay. I gave you a, a fairly lengthy quote in your notes because I love the way she explains this point. I'll read it slowly. To have fellowship with God is to have life. Okay, we talked about that even from back when we were in John 17, right? Being in fellowship with God is having life, and not just any kind of life, God's kind of life, which we call eternal life because it never ends. So just like Adam and Eve had before they were deceived, when they turned away from God, who is the very source of life, the inevitable consequence was to suffer death. Even today, people criticize God for imposing such a harsh penalty. But they fail to recognize that God did not say, if you sin, I will kill you. But if you sin, you will die. To remove oneself, to make the choice to sin, is to remove oneself from God's presence through sin, and that is of necessity to remove oneself from the very source of life, and therefore death is the only place to go. Don't we kind of think, well, God, why did you have to make us die? And he's like, no, you chose to remove yourself from the source of life. That's what sin does to us. It moves us from this side where all these good things are to the side of darkness. But obviously we know there's a way to get back. So let's, well, I already wrote the darkness. And because of these verses, I'm going to add on this side, if I can make this pen work. There we go. Sin and across from life, death. Now we're about to go into verse 6, and John is going to expose three false claims and how to avoid them. The first one is, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Or in some versions it says, do not do the truth. So if we say, I'm in fellowship with God, but at the same time, I'm walking in darkness. He says, eh, that doesn't work. That's a lie. That means we're not living what is true if we say that. And here's the definition of truth. Aletheia in Greek, the unveiled reality as opposed to mere appearance. And in our culture, truth is a mental cognitive entity. But to John... Truth is not just a doctrine to believed and accepted cognitively. It is something that must be done. That stood out to me because I do think of truth as just something kind of in my mind. What I believe, this is true. This is right. But for him, in his culture, 
Truth is something you do. It's, an, it's, it's how you live. It's not just something you think. Since God is light, it is inconsistent to say we are in fellowship with God while walking in darkness. That is the lie. So we're going to add truth and lies to our columns. Okay. This basically is asking us the question, does your walk match your talk? Right? And it's important to recognize that the word walk here is in present tense. That means it refers to ongoing behavior or a pattern of living. This does not speak of an occasional lapse, but a lifestyle of darkness. We do not need to fear losing our salvation when we sin, but it does affect our fellowship. <coughs> and we need to be serious about how we are choosing to walk. So make it, read for me what 2 Corinthians 6.14 says. It's on your paper. You just say it out loud. What fellowship can have light with darkness? What fellowship can light have with darkness? It's basically emphasizing you, you can't live in both sides, right? It doesn't work. The first false claim, which we just said is claiming to be in fellowship with God while still walking in darkness, follows a false doctrine John is refuting called antinomianism. Try that word, huh? It just means... Against, that's the anti-law. And what it is saying, it's based on the idea that we are no longer under the law, which is true, and it focuses on grace alone and no morals. So it gives license to sin. So they're just saying, there's no more law? We can do whatever we want. We don't have to obey God's laws anymore. Everything's under grace. Sin as much as you want, no consequences, okay? So that's one of the false doctrines that was creeping into the church at that time. And John is refuting that, saying, no, you can't say you're walking in fellowship with God and at the same time walking in darkness. They don't go together. And John is saying that sin and righteousness are as mutually exclusive as light and darkness. So saying that we can walk in sin and still be right with God is a lie. And remember I told you that he goes back and forth between the positive and the negative and he kind of makes us feel good and then he tells us something hard. Here we go. Back and forth, back and forth. So the next verse is, the first one was, if we claim to have fellowship but we're walking in darkness, that's a lie. Now he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with who? With one another. Did you expect to find fellowship with God? Because that's what I expected to find right there. And I was surprised. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So walking with God in the light means we will be in sync with other believers. We have fellowship, communion, many things in common. And when we choose the side of light, 
the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. But then if we're walking in the light, why would we need purifying from sin? Next verse. If we claim to be without sin, that's in the present tense, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Ooh. I um, define deceive for you. It means to cause to roam from safety. I wouldn't have thought of it that way. Roam from safety, truth, or virtue to go astray. So, going off track. How is it that we deceive ourselves when we think we have no sin? Well, obviously, we're believing a lie, right? Because Romans 3 clearly tells us there is no one righteous. Not even one, it says. And we also know from Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things is how that finishes. So it is easy for us to fall into believing lies. I don't know if you've ever heard of this term. Cognitive dissonance is something that's kind of popular to talk about. And it refers to the uncomfortable state we feel when our reality does not match our beliefs. So if we're saying one thing, but we're seeing in reality something different, it causes an uncomfortable state in our mind, in our feelings, because, wait a minute, this is not matching up, okay? So to avoid this, to this discomfort, we will either conform to our beliefs, that means change your reality, start doing what you say you believe, or change your belief, okay? And in case that explanation was hard to understand, I put an example on there for you. For example, I live with my boyfriend, but the Bible says sex outside of marriage is not okay. That puts me in a state of discomfort because I know that I'm living in a way that's wrong. So I will do one of two things. I will change my lifestyle and get myself right with what I say I believe, or I will change what I believe, and I will find a reason, excuse, a way to say what I'm doing is okay. Does that make sense? And this is falling under this idea of how we can deceive ourselves. Okay? It can be easy to rationalize our behavior and deceive ourselves into believing it is not sin. Or, like we were talking about in the first one, we can continue in sin and still be covered by God's grace and say, it's fine, I can do whatever I want because we're not under the law anymore. So these are the two ways that that can lead us. And even when we do live with good intentions, I mean, trying to obey everything that we have learned, that God tells us, often we even have sins that we're unaware of. How do I know that? One of the places I can find that is in Psalm 19, where David says, who can discern his own errors? 
Many times we can't discern our own errors. We don't know everything we've done wrong, right? And he says, forgive my hidden faults. But conversely, when we do have the truth in us, which is the law, the word, the Holy Spirit, what does that do for us? It makes us conscious of sin. And God tells us what to do about that. Are you familiar with the passages that say the law was given in order to make us recognize that we have sin? That was why God gave the law. Because without a law, you can't say that anything's right or wrong. So the law was given for people to realize, oh, I can't do everything right. I need a Savior. So that's why he's talking about the law. Also, his word and the Holy Spirit are the ways we become conscious of sin. And the next verse tells us what to do about that. The one that we just read was, if we claim we don't have any sin, right? If we claim to be without sin, he says, that's a lie. That we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But then we go back to the other side. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That was the first verse I memorized in Spanish when I was in the in missions. And this is the best news ever. It is an easy way to stay in fellowship with God. And it's important to remember that becoming aware of sin in your life is not a bad thing. Because most of the time, we don't like to become aware, right, of sin in our lives. But what does it mean? It means you're getting closer to the light. Our ongoing walk with God, as we get closer to the light, it reveals areas that are still dark, that need work, that need correction, that need to get on track. So it's not a bad thing to say, oh, okay. I need to fix this, get back on track. And I noticed that it says when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. Why is it that he's faithful when he forgives us? He's keeping his covenant promise. He made a way to redeem his people, even though we didn't hold up our end of the deal. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. I love that. So him providing us freedom shows his faithfulness. But it also says that it is just. And I thought, why in the world is it just for him to forgive us our sins? Doesn't seem right at all to me. It seems like... I deserve to be punished. The reason it is just is because the debt has already been paid. If Jesus paid the debt for our sins, it would be unjust for God to require a second payment from us. If you owed a debt, a mortgage, and somebody came and paid it off, And then the bank came and said, you still owe me this. 
that's not just. It's already been paid. And so it actually is just for God to forgive us because it's already been paid. Isn't that awesome? No double punishment. Double jeopardy, I think it's called in the law. No double jeopardy. All right, the last one in this chapter. If we claim we have not sinned, sounds a lot like the one before it, but this time it's in past tense. The first one is if we claim to be without sin in present tense, and now it's if we claim we have not sinned, past tense, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. Why does saying we have not sinned make God a liar? Because Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. So if we say we have not, we're calling God a liar. And that means his word is not in us. These last two false claims that we have no sin or have not sinned fall under the, a second false doctrine that John is refuting, and this one's called perfectionism. Believing that sin has been eradicated in the believer, and now they cannot sin. And that really is a doctrine that some people still preach. So, now John summarizes his points and masterfully, I think, brings balance to these two extreme doctrines. One saying... Live however you want, right? It's fine. No more law. The other one's saying, got to be perfect. Do everything right. There is no more sin. And John summarizes, beginning of chapter 2, he says, my dear children. And that phrase right there, I don't know if you remember from, from John 17 class, but remember we talked about technon is the child of God? talked about the two different kinds of child of God or son. This is technion, so he changes it a little bit to put a, a little ending on it that means you're my dear, beloved little child. Not necessarily little as in young or small, but just how tender-hearted he feels towards these children. And I even put what it is in Spanish because for me it, it sounds, if anybody knows Spanish, it sounds special. It's when he says, hijitos. I know a couple of you in here speak Spanish. Hijitos, my little dear children. It's a loving, pastoral, fatherly way of calling them. And he says, I write this so you will not sin. That's what he wants for us. Paul's argument from Romans 6 is, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, he says. We have died to sin. We shouldn't live in it any longer. So the high standard remains. I'm not saying it's fine to do whatever. I'm saying I'm writing this to you so you won't sin. He doesn't lower the bar. He keeps it high. But right away, he says, if anybody does sin, because I just mentioned, we can't say that we don't have sinned or haven't sinned, right? If anybody does we have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In there you see the word advocate. 
That's the paraclete. You might have heard that before. It's the same word that we have for lawyer, one who speaks for us, who defends us. He's our counselor. And the Holy Spirit is also called this same name. So Jesus is the righteous one, meaning the one who speaks for us. And he is also the sinless one whose sacrifice covers us. Jesus is both the high priest, that's the one who goes before us, and the sacrifice itself that the high priest would bring to sacrifice on our behalf. So, in summary, clearly the goal is not to sin. We don't want to abuse grace, but we're also not to deny it. That's the balance between the two doctrines that John's refuting. Make sense? For me, this passage highlights the importance of living a consistent lifestyle, not a perfect lifestyle and not a fake lifestyle. Because I've seen both in the church. People feel like they have to, you know, either be perfect or if they can't be perfect, try to put on a fake and make it look like it's perfect. But for me, what we need is authenticity. And that's actually the first value written on the wall in our atrium. We have to be authentic, live in truth. Yes, I'm trying to live what's right, but no, I don't always do everything right. Integrity, transparency, not trying to cover up when we make errors, but say, this is, this is what we do sometimes. We mess up sometimes. We're not perfect. We're real. That's the opposite of hypocrisy. There's nothing hidden or fake. And ladies, this kind of living means that we don't have pressure to keep up appearances. Instead of living in fear, we can live in peace. And that's the balance that John's bringing. So I would use verse 1 of chapter 2 to make a summary statement. Summing it up, he kind of says, Beloved, do your best not to sin. But if you do, confess it. Thank God that Jesus cleanses you and get back to living right. Ready for the next verse? If you want to write that down later, it's in your notes. We know that we have come to know him. Or some versions say, this is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commands. So this is going to be one of the marks of a true disciple on that page. What is it about knowing God that makes us keep his commands? I thought about this for a long time. And I think that it helps to look at people in our life who we do obey. What about them makes us obey them? And I thought of they may have authority, like police. They have the authority to 
punish you or do something to you, and they have that level of authority, so that makes you obey. What else? Respect. People who have wisdom, teachers, are people that makes me want to obey because I think they know what they're talking about. Maybe love, if there's a relationship there. I want to obey that person. And if there's truth, then I think they're trustworthy. So my question is, do we love, trust, and respect or fear God enough to obey him? He says that if we really have come to know him, we'll keep his commands. And for me, it's because I believe all those things about him. I believe he knows what's right. He has the authority to tell me what's right. He loves me so much that I believe whatever he wants for me is good for me. And he has the truth. He's trustworthy. So I can trust him to do whatever he's telling me. But whoever says, I know him, and does not do what he commands is a liar. John's going right back to how he talked in the first chapter. If you're saying this thing, but you're not doing what God says, you're lying. It's not the truth. The truth is not in that person. And again, it's what I said is inconsistent or it's incongruent. It, it doesn't fit. You can't say, I love God, I'm walking with God, and have disobedience, which would be not obeying his commands. So I'm adding obedience and disobedience to our columns of good and bad. But here he goes back and forth. If you're saying you know him, but you're not doing what he says, you're a liar. But anyone who does obey his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. And I love that word complete. It teaches me that love is not a feeling. It becomes complete when you follow through with action. And it's very true in this verse with God. It's not just, I love God, and then I'm going to go disobey him and do whatever I want. Love becomes complete when we follow through and keep his commands. But that's also true with love even with people. Love is not just, I feel like I love you. Love many times, if you've been married very long, many times love is a choice to act upon rather than just a feeling. So I think it works for both. And this is the rest of verse 5. This is how we know we are in him. And then it goes into 6. Whoever claims to live, that's the NIV version live, but it's, it's the actual Greek word meno, which oftentimes is translated abide. I wanted to make sure you know that because live can be translated from several different words. And this is the idea of living, abiding. When we talked about John 15, about the vine and the branches, and we live in him, we remain in him, we abide in him. That's this word. 
Whoever is claiming that we are abiding in him must live, but this time live is a different Greek word, which means walk. So this is like live out. Okay? If you say you're abiding in God, you have to walk it out. Like who? As Jesus did. He came to give us that example, to show us what it means to obey the Father, to love the Father, to walk with the Father. And we're supposed to walk like he did. One of my favorite passages that shows Jesus' relationship to the Father, there's many, but what came to mind is Hebrews 5, 7. And it said, during his life here on earth, during the days that Jesus was here, he cried out to the Father with loud cries and tears, it says. And he was heard because of what? Because he was the son? No, that's what I thought it should say. Because of his reverent submission. That's respect and choosing to obey. That's Jesus' example that he left us. When it says, whoever claims to abide, to live with God, to have fellowship with God, must act, live, walk out life like Jesus did. I'm like, wait, I can't live like Jesus did. He lived a perfect life. He's not referring to you have to live a perfect life. He's saying, I want you to follow Jesus in the way he walked in reverent submission. And we won't do it perfectly, but that's what we're, that's what we're going for, right? To keep his commands, to obey his word, because we love him. And we believe that he, because he loves us and he knows the truth, he's completely good, he's everything on the side of light, whatever he tells us to do is good for me. And I can trust him. That makes me want to obey. Even if I do it imperfectly, it gives me that motivation to obey. I think verse 3, which starts with, we know we've come to know him, or this is how we we know, can be combined all the way down to 6 and make kind of a summary, this is how we know statement. How would we know that we know God or are in him? When we walk in obedience like Jesus did. And remember, we're not talking about walking perfectly in obedience, but that's our lifestyle. There's a difference between a one-time, occasional, or a every day, this is the way I do things. It's not a pattern of life. It is what you choose. All right, ready for verse 7? Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command. John's saying, hey, this isn't something you haven't heard before. This is an old one, one that you've had since the beginning. And this old command, it's the message that you've heard. I went over this over and over and over to figure out what's the message, what's the old command. And if you put several verses together, he tells you this old command The one he says you've had since the beginning is the message 
You have heard. That's what it says in verse 224. We haven't gotten there yet, but we will. And he's talking about the original message from Jesus. The beginning of the new covenant. Okay? That's when he's talking about you've heard it from the beginning. And it'll tell us later that, that was, that's what he means when he's talking about the beginning. And we got to remember that John is writing somewhere around 60 years after the birth of the church. Okay? Jesus dies, resurrected, ascends to heaven. The church is born. 60 years have gone on. And so when John is saying, I'm writing you an old command. The message that you've heard from the beginning. He's talking about the original message of the gospel when the church started 60 years ago. Okay? And the second section, you remember we said we're talking about two big sections. God is light is this first one. The second one is, this is the message. Okay? And that is that God is love. And that's, it, sa- it says that was what they heard from the beginning. That they were to love one another. And that original message came on the last night Jesus was with his disciples. When he says in chapter 13 of John, a new command I give you. To love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's why he calls it a new command. Look at verse 8. He just finished saying, I'm not writing you a new command. I'm writing you an old one. The one you've had since the beginning. Then he says, yet I am writing you a new command because Jesus had called it a new command when he first instituted it. And he says, its truth is seen in him and in you. The new command to love one another was definitely seen in Jesus and also seen in the church because that's what he told us. This is how They will recognize that you belong to me. You love one another. And then he says, the truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing. That word also means departing, going away. And the true light is already shining. This is the idea that the kingdom of heaven is here. Remember, Pastor Tim says the already, not yet. It's here. It's come. But not everything's made perfect yet. That's in the second coming. So it is seen in Jesus and it is seen in the true church that the darkness is passing. The true light is already shining and it should be evident by our love, which is his next point. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 4, this is the same idea, saying that it's inconsistent to be in the light and disobey God. Now he's saying it's also inconsistent to be in the light and hate a brother or sister. Jesus is raising the bar. Remember we said that he didn't lower the bar? He said, I'm keeping the high standard. You need to walk with me, obey my commands. 
And now he's raised it that obedience is not just outward obedience, it's inward thoughts, which he did while he was here. And you've been told not to murder? I tell you, you know, you don't even hate, basically is what he's saying. Same thing he said about adultery. You've been told not to commit adultery? Well, don't even look at a person and think things like that. Verse 10. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives, and this is the abide, in the light. And there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Walking in darkness, whether it is hating another believer or any other sin, obscures our vision. God doesn't want us walking in the darkness because he knows it makes it harder for us. We don't see well when we walk in darkness, meaning out of fellowship with God, we can't see things. And I mean physically, but I mean spiritually. We are blind to what God wants to show us. We can easily lose perspective, and therefore we have a hard time making good choices. And there's a few more verses I wanted to read about darkness and light, but I don't think we have time to look at those, so I just left the verses for you if you want to look them up later. But we've got two more words to add to our columns here tonight. Love and hate, but I am going to specify what they mean. I'm having trouble with this pen. There we go. Love, hate. Is all love always perfect on the side of light? And is all hate always bad and wrong on the side of darkness? Hmm. We cannot say that love is always good and hate is always bad. And specifically in this verse, he says that it applies to who? Brothers and sisters. So we're to love brothers and sisters, that means other believers, and not hate them. But he doesn't say all love and all hate fall into those categories. There are things that God hates. The Bible says so, Right? It is not inconsistent, like we've been saying, it's inconsistent for one thing to go with the other. It's not inconsistent to hate sin. God does hate sin because it does terrible things to us, right? And on the opposite side, we're not supposed to love anything that is contrary to God or love things above God. So the popular phrase, love is love. All love is just great, which implies that all love is good. That's not biblical. The key is actually found in what is the object of our love or hate. Does that make sense? We will get into that next week because the very next verse after we finish tonight is do not love the world. And he's not talking about people. 
because he loves people. He's talking about the world system. All right. Before we finish with our last three verses, I'm going to make a little picture up here with what we have on our columns so far. You guys ever make Venn diagrams in school? You remember the Venn diagrams? So all of these things belong on the, on the side of God, of good, of light, right? And all of these things belong on the side of evil and darkness. And as I was going through, I kept hearing him say, you know, you can't have this and be in this. You can't be on both sides. And a Venn diagram means where there is a place where the two circles intersect, there's some things that are in both, right? Gray area. And all I see John saying is there is no crossover. There is no way to live where you've got one foot with God and one foot in the darkness. And I kept saying there's no crossover. There's no crossover. There's no way to be on God's side and on the other side. But we have a Savior. We were on this side. We were enemies of God, we read in Colossians. We know that we have sin and have sinned because he told us it's a lie to say that we don't have sin or have not sinned. So how did we get over here? And when I was thinking about this, I heard the words, God, there's no crossover. And he said, until you put the cross over it. And when you put the cross over it, we have verses like, he have brought you from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son. And I want you to read three of these verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Anyone? Jenny? John 5:24 Rose and Nancy Colossians 1:13 to 14 cuz these verses very clearly talk about how we've been transferred from one to another when you're ready raise your hand Jenny So the one who knew no sin, he was on this side. He became sin so that we could be on the side of righteousness. That's the only way crossover could happen. The one who was over here with no sin was made to be sin for us to be able to have a bridge, basically, to walk over to the side of light. Next verse. It has the word right there. 
the one who believes, has crossed over from death to life. I thought that was beautiful. And then the Colossians verse is what I mentioned about changing dominion. Forgiveness of sins. So I just wanted to share that with you because I was so touched by it when um, I just realized there's no way, there's, there's no crossover that you can't get from one side to the other except that Jesus went to the cross to make that path for us to go from death to life, from darkness to light, from sin to righteousness. And now that's where we stand. Isn't that beautiful? So after reminding us of the high standard we're called to live by, John follows with three verses to encourage his readers and reassure them that he is confident they belong to God. Because when we're confronted with the reality of, hey, if you're saying you belong to God, but you're still walking in darkness, you're a liar. Or if you're saying you don't have sin, That's a lie. You're being deceived. If you're saying that you love God, but you're not keeping his commands, that's a lie. You don't belong to him. You're not in fellowship with him. So I can imagine, they're like, am I in fellowship with God? I did mess up last week. Did I get kicked out? You know, that kind of idea. So I feel like as a loving father, he wants to balance. And these last verses do that. So I'm just going to read through them. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you do know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, Because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He just, verse after verse, says you are on the side of light. You do know the Lord. Your sins have been forgiven. You have overcome the evil. Don't be worried because I'm calling you to a high standard. Yes, I'm calling you. I'm writing to you so that you will not sin. But if you do, you have an advocate. You're forgiven. You get cleansed. You get back on track. You live authentically. That's what he's saying. And this letter, I believe, is for believers of all ages in all stages of maturity. And that's why he uses children, fathers, and young men, and even the unmentioned females, because we know they spoke that way, but it didn't mean that we're not included. And John is calling his readers dear children several times throughout this letter. So personally, I don't think it's only meant for children or meant for fathers. That's a word that he uses for everybody throughout the letter. Some commentators do draw conclusions about the words giving to each age group. But if you look at the statements, 
they're not exclusive to any group. The things he says are doctrinally true for all believers. So I believe that he names these various groups to make sure everyone feels included. I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, children. I'm writing to you, young people. These words are for you, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter if you're young or old, no matter if you're a new believer or an old believer that's been around for all 60 years since the church has been born. These words are for you, and they're for us. And so I want us to encourage each other and build each other up with these words also. In essence, what I think he's saying is all of you, the ones who have remained faithful to the Lord, because as we'll see later, some have left the church. The ones who have remained faithful to the Lord in his word, you are on the side of light and love. You're demonstrating that you do know the Father and the Son. You have been forgiven. You're living out the truth, even if it's imperfectly, and overcoming darkness and evil. The standard is high. God did not lower the bar. Instead, he raised us up with Christ. Ephesians 2, 6, and 7 says, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us in heavenly places with him in heavenly places. So that, why are we seated there? So we can just enjoy our place up there. So that he can show the riches of his grace to the coming ages. And it is. We are examples of how rich his grace is. And then um, I'm not going to close with prayer because you guys are going to close by praying for each other. Got it? All right.